This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. At SoundsTrue.com, you can find hundreds of downloadable audio learning programs, plus books, music, videos, and online courses and events. At SoundsTrue.com, we think of ourselves as a trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today, my guest is Stephen Hayes. Stephen Hayes received his PhD in clinical psychology from West Virginia University and is currently a Nevada Foundation professor and chair of the Department of Psychology at the University of Nevada, an author of over 35 books and more than 500 scientific articles. His career has focused on an analysis of the nature of human language and cognition and the application of this to the understanding and alleviation of human suffering. A co-founder of Acceptance and Commitment Therapy, known as ACT, with Sounds True, Stephen Hayes is a contributor to a new book called The Self-Acceptance Project, How to Be Kind and Compassionate Towards Yourself in Any Situation. This episode of Insights at the Edge was originally aired as part of a series of interviews that focused on the challenge of self-acceptance. Stephen and I talked about perspective-taking as one of the most important keys working with inner critic attacks. We also talked about Stephen's experience of having a panic disorder early in his life and how he learned through the crucible of his own experience how to work with anxiety and dread. We talked about self-judgment as it relates to body image using the ACT approach and the power of working with diffusion techniques. And finally, Stephen offered his pith answer to how he makes sense of spirituality and the spiritual underpinnings of acceptance and commitment therapy. Here's my conversation with Stephen Hayes. Now, to begin with, you're the co-founder of a psychological method that actually has a lot of scientific research behind it. ACT. Yeah, ACT. Acceptance and Commitment Therapy. And what I'd love to know is what would an ACT approach be to working with a mean inner voice inside? How, How would somebody who was working with an ACT therapist, let's say, approach this challenge? Well, there'd probably be a few elements that you'd bring to it. Um, you'd try to bring a sense of perspective taking to it. So you would step back just a little bit from the voice and notice the voice as it is, uh, allowing it to say what it says, listening with a sense of curiosity. We might say acceptance, but we don't mean acceptance in the sense of tolerance or resignation, but something more like the etymology of it, which is to receive as if to receive a gift. And when we've extracted what we can from it, there are things inside these voices that can be useful. Uh, we would try to work on our attentional flexibility so that it, it, it's 
cannot dictate to us and command our life seconds without our will. Uh, we would use what we call diffusion methods. Uh, ACT is about 30 years old, and our original name for that was deliteralization, but I could never say it smoothly, so we made up another word, which is diffusion. Not diffusion, it's a neologism, defusion, which means to, to take that poured-together quality that symbolic events have and to sort of notice that mental process in flight. So there's a little gap and a little bit of flexibility, a gap between the sense of consciousness of I here now, I'm aware of those thoughts, and the content of those thoughts themselves. And then, uh, given all of that, we'd shift towards what we most deeply care about, taking what's useful and leaving the rest behind and uh, getting our uh, feet focused on what we care about rather than on what we're worrying about or fearing or judging or self-loathing about or whatever the voice is leading us to do. Okay, so I think it would be helpful for me, and I'm going to presume our listeners as well, if we could take this through an actual example. So, sure. so let's take an example of someone who's working with a body image challenge that, you know, they're not necessarily that overweight, but they feel terribly overweight. Let's just for random sake choose someone kind of at midlife who's suffering yeah. from a challenge like this. Can you take me through those steps using that example? Sure. So I might uh, try to find out Oh, back up a little bit and just watch the voice. And there may be things in there that are useful to us. I mean, they may be warning us. There are problem-solving issues that you can, which is what language like that is for, uh, around issues of weight and health. And we may I may have noticed that I put on too too many pounds, and we better exercise more. And that's a good idea to focus on my health. But then there's another piece, which is that you're ugly, unlovable, unacceptable. There's something deeply wrong with you. Your body's disgusting. Um, and those things, uh, you know, are, go way beyond anything that could be useful. And what we would do is, is sort of back up and try to embrace that with a sense of compassion. We might find how long that's been going on. Maybe it's go you can find seeds of this all the way back into childhood, adolescence, and maybe even before. I might imagine myself as a child saying those exact words. And what would you do? You probably wouldn't slap the child, criticize him, tell him there's something wrong with him or her, or snap out of it. Instead, you'd probably try to embrace the kid and help that child carry this. We might use some over-diffusion methods. There's hundreds of them. The community's inventing them all the time. Uh, be careful about what I'm about to say because it can seem like self-ridicule and it's nothing like that, but well-timed. Uh, we might go back and start with like distilling the self-judgment down to a single word and then saying it out loud over and over again rapidly for perhaps 30 seconds. We might... Uh, now, let's, uh, just, let's just take that as for an example because this idea of diffusion isn't something I, I fully understand yet. So what yeah. would be the purpose? You t could take a word like fat, 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 fat. What would be the purpose in doing yeah, that? Yeah, I'd get it even closer to the, the judgment because it isn't just fat. It would probably be ugly, unlovable, or something like that. And the fat is more descriptive. Okay. So I'd take it to the one that's kind of arbitrary, that judgmental part that we've added to it, just a descriptive part, um, like ugly or unlovable. And say it 
repeatedly. And what happens is, is that the meaning begins to drop away. And there's a sense of showing up behind your eyes and being aware of the fact that you're ensnared once again in this metal spider, weaving this uh, web of meaning through symbols uh, into something you've noticed, or you've noticed you have more bounds than perhaps you should. And uh, there's a space that shows up. And we've done randomized trials just of that little piece. There's a, the distress goes down and the believability of it goes down. So there's a sense of distance. Like it's something close to, and this is another diffusion method, I'm having the thought that I'm ugly. I'm having the thought that I'm unlovable. And then can we bring a compassionate, uh, kind, gentle, loving stance even to that thought? Just like you might with a child who would say out loud, I'm unlovable. You're not going to criticize the child for that. And so that uh, perspective-taking and self-compassion place opens up very naturally when you begin to see language in flight and not just interact with a world that's structured by judgmental language. And diffusion methods do that very quickly. 30 seconds of word repetition. Try it yourself. See what happens. Titchener came up with it in 1907, the father of American psychology. We're the first, I think, to apply it to these kinds of uh, clinical uh, methods and with uh, very good results, but it's just one of hundreds of such things. Uh, we might sing the song of I'm ugly or I'm unlovable, uh, we put it to an opera form, we may uh, put it to a, uh, a song that we particularly like, we'll do it in the, to the tune of Happy Birthday and just see how it feels. We might say it in a cartoon voice, we might put it on our chest, put it on a t-shirt, wear it around. Walk around for a few days with uh, I'm ugly and unlovable on your shirt. See what happens. So, so part of it is introducing a certain type of humor, you might say, into yes, this well thing that we're taking so seriously. Well-timed humor is beautiful. That's why I say you have to be careful about ridicule because this is not ridiculous. There's a certain amount of kind of bittersweet quality to it. It's very human. And you don't need to be ridiculed or shamed or blamed for it. This is just a symbolic mode of mind that evolved initially for cooperation and then for problem-solving going to where it, it doesn't belong, which is uh, self-categorization, self-judgment. So uh, we might um, uh, simply uh, uh, look at uh, that thought the way you might look at an object. We might ask ourselves, how big is it? How fast is it? What shape? How, what color? And as you do that, it sort of takes a, a form away from you and you can look at it. We can look at a very unattractive thing on the wall there and we're not going to have the thought that there's something wrong with this because we see something homely and looking at a thought that's homely is like that um, so these are diffusion yeah. that sort of liberate us and take sort of from the the squeezing down that happens with automatic modes of mind problem-solving mode of mind into the space that opens up with a more aware descriptive sunset mode of mind when you look at a sunset, you don't go, oh, gee, you know, that pink is a little off and the blue could be better. If you could bring that same mode of mind to even your difficult thoughts, you may find that you have more flexibility than you would have when you're simply arguing yourself out of it, trying to con convince yourself it's wrong, or worse, criticizing yourself for having that thought in the first place, which you probably came back kind of honestly through the media, through your um, parents, through uh, uh, your sibs, and, and so on. So, so it sounds to me that one of the important steps that needs to be taken is this separating, not identifying with exactly. with these thoughts, and that, that's a pretty big step. For I mean, when you're when you're 
super identified with a negative voice inside, just making that separation, that's a big step for somebody to make. It's a big, it's a big step, but one of the things underneath the ACT work is the basic science of cognition, and we think we know what the key of this is, and it's perspective-taking. Humans are the most cooperative species among the primates by far. And being able to kind of step back and look from a different perspective. If I could give you a two-minute or even a one-minute description of something to do that might help with this, would it, would it be useful? Yes. Are you kidding? You're talk, you're, you found the cognitive key? This is the self-acceptance <laughs> uh, project. Here's a, give here's it to a, me. That'll, that'll happen. This will work even before you know anything about ACT, anything about mindfulness, anything about acceptance, anything about self-compassion. If you simply uh, picture yourself, you can do it eyes closed, sitting there struggling with the thing you're struggling from, and with, and then notice that there's a part of you noticing that. And then take that part of you and put it outside of you, looking back at yourself, sitting there suffering. And just watch yourself, watch your body, look at yourself. You might even imagine going back to the time when that issue first came, because the natural compassion we bring towards children would be helpful here. And then ask yourself, what do you think of that person? Is this a lovable person? Is it a whole person? Then put that point of consciousness, just like a movie, across the, the room and look at yourself sitting there in your mind's eye, eyes closed. And then imagine you're not actually across the room. This is a memory, and you're remembering 10 years from now, from a wiser future, what it was like to struggle so. And in your mind, you can picture yourself sitting right in that chair, struggling that way. And then ask yourself, if this happened, what would you say to yourself? What little two or three sentences of wisdom would you pass back to yourself from 10 years hence? And then bring yourself back into your body. What you're going to find you pass to yourself is something very wise. You're going to say, it's okay. It's okay to be you. You're going to say, you can, you can move on. You don't have to fix yourself. You'll find yourself talking in a very kind of almost Buddhist kind of perspective within seconds without any guidance and here's my point to it human consciousness which includes this element of perspective taking is inherently self-compassionate towards yourself and compassionate towards others and the folks have been saying in the spiritual traditions forever that we need to bring a different mode of mind through contemplative practice and things of that kind into the world are exactly right and what the scientists need to do is figure out how to do that in ways that are even faster and that can be put into the lives of Joe Sixpack and not just those who can afford 10-day silent retreats, which in the busy world we're in will simply never penetrate to the degree it needs to to help people and find people where they are. Uh, so that's, that's what we're up to. Perspective taking alone uh, is healing. That's very, very helpful. Uh, now, it sounded like when you were talking about this negative voice inside of us, that you were calling this the sort of problem-solving part yes. of our mind, but that yeah. we're using the problem-solving part in a way that it wasn't designed to be by flushing our entire character down the drain. And that, that Could exactly. you tell me more, more about that from a cognitive function well, standpoint? From our point of view, it's called relational frame theory. We have good reasons to believe um, uh, that the first thing that evolved was simple perspective taking between speakers and listeners as a form of cooperation. Probably happened about 100,000 years ago, as best we can tell. But it sits on top of 520 million year old learning processes, all this operant classical conditioning thing. 
is uh, 520 million years old or, or longer, but not language. It's very recent. And so initially, you were able to say to someone, is there an apple over there? Yes, there's an apple. This back and forth between knowing the name for an object means you can orient towards the object when you hear the name. Twelve-month-old babies will do that. It's a very basic process. But soon after, they begin to learn how to judge. And the, the, the cutoff, if you want way of thinking about this, if you have kids, you've seen it. You know, a nickel is, is bigger than a dime to a three-year-old, and a dime is bigger than a nickel to a six-year-old. And by the time you can arbitrarily compare things, then you can imagine futures that have never been and weigh them and pick among alternatives. That came later among this tribal eusocial species called human beings, uh, but it, it gave us tremendous abilities to solve problems verbally. It also gave us the ability to reflect back our, on ourselves and create our life as a problem to be solved. We started chopping ourselves up and saying, I like this, I don't like this, I want this, I don't want this. And a lot of things we like or, not, or want or don't want are things that are part of our history, and we, they, we can't slice and dice ourselves in that way. So uh, the, uh, taking this problem-solving mode of mind and moving then into a more descriptive and appreciation mode that is closer to where language began, but uh, perspective taking helps, which we th think came later in language development. It comes later in the development of language with children. Uh, gives us a way of seeing ourselves as whole, watching these processes kind of in flight and allowing them to be there. So you shift naturally from I want this, I don't want that, this kind of subtractive, limited, judgmental mode of mind which is good for problem solving in the external world, is horrible when it's applied within. You can't do that to yourself. You're a historical being. Anything that's happened to you will be with you the rest of your life, at least to a degree. And so what you're going to need to do instead is to back off and kind of embrace the whole of who you are. And perspective taking will help you do that. That sunset mode of mind where you, with appreciation, notice your history, remember what's happened to you, even the things you don't like, because inside pain comes wisdom, and the things that hurt us are the things that flipped over, the things we care about. Our caring is not our enemy, and when we make our own pain our enemy, we make our caring our enemy, and the cost is just too high. So putting language on a leash and learning how to use these different modes of mind is, or, or what are in the spiritual and mindfulness traditions, and all we're trying to do is bring a Western science, pull it at its joints, uh, not out of sacrilege, but to, to simplify a uh, way of uh, approaching these problems. And that's what we do in the ACT uh, tradition. I'm curious, Steve, to know how you've worked with ACT in your own life, perhaps with some yeah. challenging area that related to self-acceptance uh, for you. Well, ACT really starts with my own panic disorder. And uh, thank God for panic, because without it, I think I would have been uh, a treacle head, you know, very much interested in objectifying and dehumanizing myself in the interest of achievement. And I mean, I can have compassion for the part of me that yearned to do that, but I'm very thankful that some part of me said, no, I'm not going to let you get away with that. And sort of inside your suffering, you find the capacity to look at pain in a different way. The original ACT book, which we wrote years and years after we developed ACT, 1999, was written by a chronic uh, suicidal depressive uh, panic disordered person in recovery, that's me, and, and a heroin addict in recovery. So, so it's not by accident that people, you know, when you've suffered, uh, you have a chance 
to interact with your mind in a different way. If you're unlucky enough to get away with your normal mode of mind, then you have the sad possibility of sort of going through your whole life without ever calling its bluff. Okay. Uh, can you can you tell me more about how you actually dealt with your panic disorder and worked with your mind in a different kind of way as, as part of the uh, origins what, here? What panic disorder does is it defines your feeling of anxiety as your enemy and adopts this problem-solving mode of mind and threatens you with dire outcomes if you can't eliminate the enemy. So you have a subtractive idea that when you can cross out and diminish or even eliminate your own feelings of vulnerability and anxiety, you know, then you'll be able to move forward. And uh, uh, that went all the way up including the, the inability basically to, I'm a pr professor, I had to and wanted to teach and to, uh, uh, my focus of research was on these kinds of problems. I went to the point where I literally could not um, take a trip, ride in an elevator, sit in a movie theater, uh, go to a restaurant, or certainly give a lecture. Uh, there were, my students saw a lot of films, and this is long ago enough, it was actual films, which I would with great difficulty get into the sprockets so that I could show them. Uh, and it was only when it got to the point where it literally was going to take everything, everything that I cared about, that it finally came to me that uh, I need to turn and walk towards that monster and uh, no longer run from the monster. And I drew upon things that I knew more from being a child of the 60s, things that came out of living on an Eastern-focused religious commune or sitting on Hippie Hill in San Francisco and, frankly, consuming chemicals that are probably not safe things to consume. And, you know, looking at, as most of the people of that era did, uh, kind of trying to look at yourself in a... Uh, a more growth-oriented, holistic way. That had traction. The things that I was doing, which were medications, traditional CBT, exposure, etc., that was like pissing into a hurricane. It, it, it gave me no traction on moving forward. So as, as that began to happen for me, I started exploring it, applying it to my clients. Sure enough, it had traction for them. And then we developed these early protocols in the 80s, did some testing, and then spent about 15 years working out the basic process and the basic science before we came forward in the late 90s. And now there's thousands and thousands of ACT folks and, you know, a million ACT texts approximately by my guesstimate around the world. And, and ACT's just one of many. I mean, the mindfulness-based cognitive therapy, DBT, et cetera, et cetera. The entire sort of uh, treatment development wing uh, has, has awakened to some of the deeper wisdoms that were there in our spiritual and religious traditions, and I've tried to learn how to package them and bring them into the healthcare system, uh, since we already have many ways of bringing them into people's lives through the spiritual traditions. This is really new, evidence-based uh, psychotherapies and other healthcare methods give us another conversation we can have that people will pay for, the healthcare system will pay for, maybe not very much, but uh, schools are interested in it, factory floors will be open to it, organizations can adopt it, and uh, it adds to it, doesn't subtract from the existing uh, mindfulness and spiritual traditions. Plus, we learn new things. I think we have ways of measuring it, analyzing it, and so forth that come out of Western science that wouldn't be there. But Okay, so Steve, I just want to make sure I'm understanding this sort of pivotal link. So here you are, and 
uh, you're exposed to spiritual teachings, meditation, etc. And that gave you the uh, grounding, uh, you know, this would be my language, I wanted to see if it, if it tracks yeah. with what you're saying, in awareness such that you could look at the thoughts you were having that related to panic and have some distance from them? Is that what you're saying can, here? Yes, yes, and I can give you two brief kind of moments. Uh, one is this sense of go, sort of going out of your body and having this almost kind of spiritual quality of looking at yourself which I remember a couple times in my life, and it's interesting if you ask somebody, have you ever been in a car accident, and did time slow down, and did you have a sense that you're sort of almost outside of yourself, watching yourself? People are sometimes very surprisingly calm when things like that happen. And there's a piece there, like when it got so bad that I was losing everything, thought I was losing everything, losing my mind, have, I was going to have to, you know, and, and there was uh, one example of two or three moments like this was thinking that I was having a heart attack and that I was dying. And in fact, I was having a panic attack. And in the middle of this, of having this out-of-body kind of sense of stepping aside, and then words that came to me in the same, uh, this same uh, episode, which I think I actually said out loud, uh, which is, you can make me hurt but you cannot make me turn against my own experience. And I just turned and said, I will not run. I am not going to run from me. And um, that put me in a completely different path, a completely different path. And there's a lot of territory to explore there. It's not like you snapped a finger. I mean, five years into the ACT work, I was doing workshops on ACT, still having panic attacks, and just putting my feet in the ground and just, you know, keeping the words coming out of my mouth. And uh, some of those early workshops are things that drew people to this work or, or a part and part of it to this day. So if I hadn't been willing to sort of stand in the hurricane and keep moving towards something I deeply care about that I knew at some very gut level was important to me, literally a matter of living or not, not in a physical way perhaps, but in a psychological way, so there's two core things, and I do think that comes in part from my uh, spiritual experiences, also from exposure to the human potential movement and to Esalen and think crazy about things that were happening during the 60s, of stepping back and watching, and this quality of choice that it's possible to step forward when everything in your normal mode of mind says to step back. We've now figured out ways of uh, supporting people in doing that in ways that are very reliable and can be quite quick. Some of these protocols are very short. And no, that's not the same thing as years and years of contemplative practice. But yes, it opens a door to the same space. And when a door is open and people can walk through it, then a journey can begin that otherwise may never have begun. And uh, so I, I just want to make sure to uh, connect a, a dot here, which is so far in, in the description of ACT, you've talked about taking perspective and, and diffusing, but it sounds like there's also an aspect of ACT that has to do with dealing with the emotional component and turning towards the difficult emotion. Right. So I'm thinking, for example, of somebody who might feel ashamed about something. Maybe yeah. they dropped the ball at work and yeah. a project 
got all yeah. screwed up or something. For, for whatever reason, that occurs to me today exactly. as, a, as something that could have happened. And this, how, how would that person, in addition to taking perspective, how would they just deal with the emotion of feeling terrible? Well, um, emotions are here to be felt, not felt uh, constantly and ruminatively. Uh, but, uh, you know, what uh, we in, include in the work is uh, you take something like shame. Shame includes an emotion that's actually good for you, guilt. Guilt is a useful emotion. The thought that comes, I'm bad, that combines with guilt to produce shame, is usually not so useful. So you'd use diffusion enough to back up and watch that categorical judgment arise and have a little bit of separation from it. And, but then what's left is the feeling of sadness and of uh, loss and of loss of potential that can inform and vitalize and lift up and people and help them walk a harder path. Uh, you may not know this, but take addiction work. Uh, shame will correlate negatively with addiction outcomes. Guilt correlates positively. We just published, I think, the first randomized trial on ACT for, uh, on the, uh, 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 of a treatment for shame and substance abuse using ACT. And initially, our outcomes were worse. They were worse than what you'd get from a 12-step program on an inpatient program. But then uh, what happened is it rebounded if you didn't do healthy things and in the act condition, it went down more slowly, but it kept going down. And what that, what that tells me is people can try to deal with their emotions in a way that looks healthy, but is not the kind of Stuart Smalley way with regard to, you know, I'm good enough, gosh darn it, people like me, with regard to substance abuse, for example, will not clean up something that uh, requires deep exploration of the pain of it as if the pain is worth attention. One of our clients in that trial had been high on uh, heroin while his daughter was being perpetrated on the back bedroom and he didn't get up and do anything about it. He's got a lot of pain to feel and it's nothing you're going to finish in a 28-day intake patient program in a healthy way. And so we walk them into the memories. We walk them into what your body does. We walk them into noticing what your mind does with it and how it tries to judge you and push you to do more of the same because after all, there's something wrong with you. And then find the courage to stand with yourself as a whole human being taking responsibility for the things that you've done and allowing those feelings to actually motivate you to, for example, reach out and be the best parent you can be. So the shift towards va values and valued living, which is key in an ACT approach, is fostered by the embrace of emotions, including ones that uh, nominally are, quote, negative. They're negative only in the sense that they are painful. But there are a lot of emotions that are painful and very useful. Uh, if you look at a child that you love, you can feel the bittersweet quality of the fear you have for how things will go for them and the knowledge you have that eventually they will die and the potential that's there for they to, them to be harmed in some way. These are not negative things that need to be erased and eliminated. Any good parent knows that, that sense of vulnerability handled well is part of being a good parent part of being loving towards your kids. And if you just walk through that in every area of your life where anxiety, sadness, uh, uh, grief, and so forth has visited you, there's a part of that which is a, a necessary link to what you care about. So uh, teaching people to go into it, to feel it on purpose, to feel it as it is, literally like you might reach out and feel the table in front of you, is something that we don't get very much training in, and uh, when you do it, 
uh, it empowers being able to shift towards what you deeply care about and then linking your behavior to that. And that's part of liberation. That's part of human empowerment that gets missed in all of this avoidant uh, uh, culture that we've got that teaches you that the the right car, the right spouse, the right beer, the right house, the, the right uh, uh, chunk of money is going to somehow create a, a life worth living. That's a lie. It's always been a lie. But we're unwise enough in this culture to actually chase it. No, I feel like I'm, I'm getting a sense of the acceptance part and the perspective taking, but I'm, I'm not 100% clear on the commitment part right. of ACT. Can you illuminate that for me? Well, commitment is is embracing your capacity to choose your values. By values, I don't mean the things you evaluate yourself with. I don't mean your, some, your goals, your judgments. I mean the qualities of life that bring vitality, meaning, and purpose in the moment to you that are never finished. They're part of your journey, like things that you could turn into adverbs, like lovingly, I will. They're not, along the way, there may be goals, like getting a degree or, you know, having children. But the the quality is what's of importance there. And then what commitment is, is the commitment to be true to yourself, to have your moments on this planet be about building larger and larger patterns of actual seconds of action, of what you think about, what you do with your feet, what you do with your hands, as building a larger pattern of values-based action so that your habits of mind become your friend instead of your enemy. And that you've practiced, for example, self-compassion, compassion towards others, uh, you've practiced creativity or, or contribution or participation or play, the, the relationships and uh, caring about the future and caring about others, the things that you choose. It's up to you. It's between you and the person in the mirror. We know that the kind of values that do that, that build commitment, are not the kind that have the word should in it. They don't have have to or must in it. They don't have a wagging finger. They don't get shifted off to someone else, not because mama told you or because they'll be disappointed if you don't. They're things that feel intrinsic and that feel freely chosen. If you link your behavior to qualities that you choose freely of and build larger and larger patterns around that, life will lift you up and you can carry uh, the pain and the places where you've disappointed yourself and you've made mistakes forward they will actually help you in that journey because the uh, places where you hurt are the places where you care and uh, conversely if you're not willing to hurt well you can't afford to care I, if we have the moments i can give you an example that everyone's had before yeah please okay if you've been betrayed in love and almost all of us have your mind is going to tell you to protect yourself against that by never being so vulnerable and open and intimate again I get that you don't want to be ignorant when you've experienced something like that. And you're not going to be able to go back to innocence. And that's a good thing, in a way, because ignorance is not bliss. But you notice that your mind tries to protect you by essentially eliminate your caring. So you start detuning relationships. If a new relationship shows up that really could get under your skin, that could touch you deeply... Because if you're someone's close to you, if they can touch you, they can hurt you. And vulnerability, that, that openness to wounding, uh, comes right with that. Uh, as 
that door opens up, you can feel part of you wanting to run away, wanting to somehow mess up this relationship or, you know, offend the person needlessly or not answer the calls or whatever. And what we have to do is find this place where we can be more open with our pain and step forward as an act of faith, faith in ourselves, that it's okay for us to uh, be close to others, which includes that it's okay to, be, to hurt. If you uh, form an intimate relationship, even if you never deliberately hurt each other, one or the other of you is going to die first. And you think you're not going to be felt as though you've been left behind, that in some sense you've been betrayed? Think again. So hurt and pain and loss and finitude is part of life itself. And so there's a natural a, a linkage between the one side of the coin that says pain and the other side of the coin that says caring. We've all lived, lived it in relationships. It's in every other area that we care about. And so... The acceptance work is not this kind of, oh, gee, I guess you have to accept it, kind of tolerance and resignation message. It's this more joyful message that when you receive the gift of what's inside pain, you can move your attention towards what you deeply care about and build your life around that without having to hide from your own finitude, hide from the fact that love includes loss. Beautiful. Steve, I want to just ask you one final question, which is, I I know you've written 35 books and over 500 articles. That's a lot of articles. As I say, uh, get a life. (laughs) It's almost too much. But yes, I've written a lot. And that uh, one of your articles uh, is on making sense of spirituality. And I, I would love to know if you could share with me the pith of how we make sense out of spirituality. It's actually where the ACT work and the underlying work on cognition called Relational Frame Theory began. Uh, That article now is almost 30 years old. And what I argued uh, was, is that there's, in our cognitive development as a species, we have learned perspective taking that initially is nonverbal. We, we know that actually other primates have some degree of perspective taking. But we build it out with these cognitive relations, we call them dectic, meaning they're by demonstration of I, you, here, there, and now, then. I, you comes first, then here, there, and then, now, then, in the development of a, a child. And when it all comes together, there's an I, here, now-ness to awareness itself. Metaphorically, we're behind our eyes. Metaphorically, uh, it's as if there's a point from which, there's a fromness to awareness. That fromness doesn't have edges you can experience. And spirituality is one of those things in the dictionary that is defined negatively. It says not material. Material, if you chase it etymologically, comes from a root Latin word that means timber, the stuff of which things are made. And things are events with spatio-temporal limits, with edges. Consciousness in this fromness doesn't have edges. Everywhere you go, there you are. Anything that you know about, you are there to know about it. And so there's in our direct psychological experience a model of the things that we put into our spiritual language that is inherently transcendent in the sense that it's edgeless, it's formless, it's not something that is like a thing. It's no thing, or nothing, if you will, or everything. 
that which is not a thing. The thing that we've discovered in the basic science work is children who don't have that sense of self, autistic spectrum disorder, children and so forth, uh, aren't able to take the perspective of others either. And that when we train them in these cognitive relations of I, you, here, there, now, then, and we have methods for doing that, uh, very geeky, creative methods, but the child begins to show up. And at that moment, empathy becomes possible and other people show up. So there's this deep thing, wisdom in our spiritual traditions that the bench scientists agree with now, which is, I can only be a conscious human being, and I become so at the very moment in which you, for me, are a conscious human being and become so in that moment. There's another way to say it, which is, we become aware. Awareness is not this kind of alone over in the corner, me, 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 I, I, I thing. It's we. And the uh, transcendent sense of self goes across time, place, and person. You can imagine yourself behind the eyes of another. You can care about your your great-grandchildren and what the planet would be like that we leave for them. You can think about the people in a country thousands of miles away who are suffering. And the suffering of anyone, anywhere, at any time brings us all down. Because in that moment, we hurt when we see or when we become aware of the hurt of others at other times and at other places. So consciousness is inherently compassionate. And I, I think if you look at what people are talking about with spiritual experiences, this sense of transcendence that comes from awareness itself is precisely the mode of mind that we're trying to bring into uh, making a more compassionate world and one that does care about people who are other places and at other times and the suffering uh, of, of us all. Um, so, um, I think we have a way in. We have a way into what spiritual experience is about, uh, and, and maybe a way in on how to create it. You've been listening to Stephen Hayes, co founder of Acceptance and Commitment Therapy. With Sounds True, Stephen is a contributor to a new book called The Self Acceptance Project How to Be Kind and compassionate towards yourself in any situation. Thanks everyone for listening. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey.